I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest today is Ben Gibbard, lead singer and guitarist of the band Death Camp for Cutie. The band released their debut album, Something About Airplanes, in 1998 and quickly built a fan base through the next five years with a series of independent releases before breaking into the mainstream with their fourth album, 2003's Transatlanticism, and then their major label debut, Plans, on Atlantic Records, released in 2005. That album went platinum. The group have been a favorite of music supervisors and critics through the years, and their most recent release, Asphalt Meadows, their 10th album, came out in the fall of 2022. But Ben has a few other strings to his bow, with several side projects, most notably The Postal Service with Jimmy Tamborello and Jenny Lewis, and that band's only album, Give Up, released in 2003, featured a hit single, From Great Heights. Ben kept busy through the pandemic, streaming shows from home, and more recently has been back on the road touring with the Asphalt Meadows album. Ben, it's been a minute, but I'm so glad to connect with you. I am glad to connect with you as well. Good to see you. Good to see you. You and I first met around the time of the first Death Cab album. It's hard for me to believe it was that long ago when you came and did a live session from the then Museum of Television and Radio in New York City during the CMG Music Festival for my old KCRW radio show. Mate, that's 25 years ago. There aren't too many relationships of any kind that last <laughs> that long. Certainly not in the music industry and certainly not in the, uh, in the industry that's changed as much as it has since I, at least I got involved with it. It's very different. You know, I believe that Death Cab was originally a solo project and then the band came together once you got your first record deal. If I can ask you to take a look back at your much younger self, what were those early days like and what were your hopes as you kicked things off back then? Well, I was just, I was just speaking with a friend uh, of mine from the Bellingham days, which uh, Bellingham is a town about an hour and a half north of Seattle where we started playing. And we were talking about the scene at that point. This is 1997, 1998. And the, about our first show, uh, or the first show the Death Cab ever played, which was an acoustic show in a friend's living room with about four or five other people playing acoustic. And it was just people sitting on couches. The, the guy the, whose house it was, a guy named Trevor Adams, uh, was making popcorn, just kind of giving it around everybody. It was a very idyllic, dare I say, kind of innocent kind of time and scene. And I was speaking with my friends and I, I had said, is it really like that? Or am I just, am I just imagining it? Am I looking at it through rose colored glasses? And he mm. was like, oh, it really was like that. We were just all in our late teens, early twenties, trying to make music without any real sense of career. You know, I think it, you know, given the kind of music that I was listening to in college and well, in high school and then in college into the late nineties, um, you know, this was a, a style of music that had no career path. It was predominantly punk and American independent music. Mm. And, you know, I guess if, I guess if you wanted to, you know, wish upon a star, you might be able to sell 50,000 records and maybe make enough money to afford to not work in between tours. But that was, that was the ultimate goal at that point was maybe for some brief period of my life, I could make enough money doing music that I wouldn't have to go from temp job to temp job. But you know, the, the, our beginnings were really that meager as far as what our expectations and well, not even our expectations, like what our dreams were. The timing, if you think about it, was perfect because around about the time that you released that first album and started getting out there and, and touring independent music, indie rock, as it was called at the time, 
started to find a, a, a place in, in the mainstream. And as we mentioned in the intro, I was hosting a radio show in Los Angeles at the time. And I know that decision makers in Hollywood were taking notice of the music that we were playing. And it feels like indie music soundtracked movies and TV for a decade. And I mentioned in, in the intro that your music found favor with music supervisors early on. How important were those placements for you in those early days? Well, I think to your point, um, it's, it's been my kind of theory that a lot of the people who were doing music supervision in the late 90s, early aughts, were people who grew up on American indie rock, or at least, you know, they were, you know, collegiate people who probably grew up listening to college radio or whatever. And they were finally in a position to say, hey, I don't want to use, you know, this garbage bumper music. I want to use the music that I like. Let's hook up the artists and the bands that we like and get them on get them get their music in movies and tv and ads and things like that so you know i think for us and bands like us in the early aughts you know one has to kind of go back to that time and remember that there really was no internet at least the way we know it now there wasn't streaming music blogs were sort of starting to happen but they really hadn't taken on the kind of profile that they you know they did over the next 10 years or so yeah. so for anybody in a band the option like a band like us, the option to get heard was making a video and maybe having it get played on 120 minutes. Places like KCRW and other non-com or uh, college stations and alternative radio. But at the time, you know, in my opinion, I think a lot of people's opinion, alternative radio was maybe at its lowest, its lowest place. Commercial alternative radio, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it be, you know, commercial alternative radio was playing, you know, kind of, like really aggressive. They were playing Metallica. They were playing Metallica. Nothing wrong with Metallica, but of course not. I love Metallica, but but you know it, it was it it had kind of um, it was at a very low point, and I don't feel I can really mention any of the bands that were being played for fear of retribution. But I think <laughs> we all we all know we all know what it was like. I I, I was I was I was literally watching uh, uh, 120 minutes from 1998 that some friends of mine were on this band Harvey Danger and just. Just the amount of garbage around their video was astounding. And I'd forgotten how bad it was at that point. And that's kind of the environment, at least in the mainstream, that we came into. I read in a, a Vice interview you gave a couple of years ago that you look back on 2003 as a key year for you. Both Transatlanticism and the Postal Service album were released that year. And you rated Transatlanticism as, as your favorite album. Two big albums for you that came out. And again, it's hard to believe it's 20 years ago. But what was so special about that year, do you think? I think it was a few things. I think I was really starting to kind of come into my own as a songwriter. And, and you know, this is a, the benefit of hindsight, I feel I can say this. But <clears throat> I was starting to really find my own voice around our uh, third record or so, uh, Death Cab's third record. And I, I felt as if I was starting to kind of find a style that was, you know, certainly derivative, but, you know, as all styles are, but uh, less derivative than some of our earlier work. And I was starting to find a narrative voice that I really, I liked and that I felt was unique to me. But the other benefit that I had at that time was literally time. Uh, you know, for the first five years of the band or so, maybe a little less than that, but through the first three albums, we were touring incessantly. Uh, we were making not, we weren't making a lot of money and we were having to make decisions based on the next tour or the next record, uh, not necessarily uh, what was best for us creatively, but that in order to keep the momentum of this thing going in its early kind of period, it was important that we get out on tour again or get that record done. Doesn't matter if we don't have enough songs. Let's just get it done. We got to get out there. And we had this uh, on Halloween of 2001. 
Death Cab had this near breakup experience where we kind of said everything to each other that we'd ever, uh, you know, hidden inside. And sometimes when you say those things, when you say the unsayable things, sometimes that that can be a very liberating place in any relationship, whether it's a band or a marriage or whatever. You just kind of realize, okay, I've said everything I need to say. That person said everything they need to say to me. Now let's talk about how we move forward. Hmm. And for us as a band, we realized we were burned out and we needed time. We needed time off the road. We needed time to do other things. Chris Walla wanted to make uh, other records. He wanted to produce bands. And so I found myself for the first time in my, I guess now what I would call a career, a lot of time just to write. I didn't have to tour. I didn't have to think about the band. So both Give Up and Translenicism came. I was writing those records at the same time. And what I think, why I think that was such a fruitful period for me creatively is that I just had a lot of time and I was able to really just meander creatively and find some new things to kind of uh, explore uh, musically and lyrically. Um, and I think that's a large reason as to why that was such a, a fruitful year for me. Also, you know, I was 26 or 27 and kind of, um, kind of hitting a creative peak, I feel, at that point. Another 20 years on, it's interesting. You're currently on tour, I know, through most of this year um, with the new album, but you're also going to be doing a double header later this year where you and the Postal Service will go out together and play those two albums. You've got to be looking forward to that. I really am. You know, I, I had had the idea of doing this tour a couple of years ago as we were kind of moving up towards the anniversary of both records. And while the Postal Service had played what we assumed might be their last show uh, in the summer of 2013, I, I kind of felt like it was worth doing another another go round um, if for, for people either who missed that uh, tour or just to kind of just to kind of celebrate that record again. And, you know, I, I can't I couldn't think of another person who had found themselves in such a unique position of being, you know, the front person and in some ways author of two albums in one calendar year that had kind of had this particular kind of life. Um, and I, and one of my, I, I, I've been finding myself quoting this, this uh, person a lot recently because of the anniversary of these records, but there's a wonderful William Gibson quote when somebody asks him about his old books and if, you know, you know, what does he think about the, the legacy of those works, you know, Neuromancer and, and mm -hmm. that trilogy. And he said something along the lines of, well, you know, I like to think of my books as, you know, my children who went off into the world and had great adventures. Mm. That's the way I feel about these records. Like, of course, I, you know, played a large part in, in their creation. But at the same time, it's really when the music leaves your little studio or, you know, it gets released into the world that it takes on its own life. And at a certain point, you know, while you are responsible for it being in the world, it's almost as if you can't take, you can't take a credit for what that record achieved in the world or the impact that it made with people who fell in love with it. It just becomes its own kind of entity. Well, that's an opportunity to celebrate those records from, from 20 years ago. But as you celebrate 25 years as Death Cab for Cutie and look back on your career and life for, for that matter, what are some of the biggest lessons and what inspires you as a songwriter today to continue to evolve and explore? I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is that this type of work requires a lot of failing. And it's very, it, being a writer of any discipline is very difficult because you sit in a room, 
usually by yourself, you know, trying to create something out of nothing. It's, it's like, you know, an old friend of mine once referred to writing songs as alchemy. It's like there was nothing there and now there's something there. It's literally defying the laws of physics, you know? And, and for me, you know, those kind of moments of clarity, creative clarity and inspiration, uh, when you're able to really kind of harness one of those things, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world, but it requires a lot of failing. And I think that when people become discouraged or they kind of slow down as writers of any discipline, but certainly songwriters, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it gets harder. The longer you do it, it gets harder because you've written at this point, I've written so much material that one has to ask themselves the question, why, why do I need to release this new song or this new record? What is unique about this? How, how can I justify its existence in the world? And for many of the songs that I write, the answer is I can't, and I don't release them. Um, so for me, I, I've, I've just learned that this is a very, this is difficult work and it requires a lot of care and attention, but you know, when you put the work in, you know, more times than not, you're, you are rewarded and, and that it just, it just becomes a little more difficult the longer, the longer I do it. And I, I would imagine for most writers, it's the same. I love that idea of creating something that didn't exist, right? That's, that's the alchemy as you, as you talk about it. And I, I recently um, shot a pilot TV show here in Los Angeles where I was talking about Los Angeles and talking about this town. You know, they, they call it the town of dreams and all, all that kind of stuff. But the idea being that creativity, wherever it is, is really sitting down with something, a blank piece of paper or just a guitar in your hand or a piano, uh, or maybe you're a filmmaker, you know, shooting something and just literally creating something that never existed before. Is it, is it a challenge to not repeat yourself? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I've often used the, you know, the image of painting oneself in a corner creatively. It's like you've been, you know, when you first start out as a writer or as a songwriter, you've got this whole you know, get this blank canvas in this big empty room and you're, you're painting, you're painting, you're painting. And you're like, oh man, I've got less space now to work with based on the work that I've already done in this room. Um, so it's not so much that it's, it's not so much that I'm, I'm concerned with repeating myself as much as I am trying to assure myself through the people that I trust, um, as much as I possibly can that a new song, a new record, whatever is 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 worthy of its existence in the world as a as a continuation of a body of work that uh some people really love you know the fans of the band are are really are into so uh for me it's important that we not uh kind of dilute the waters and dilute the value of our catalog by just indiscriminately releasing new music into the world that not so much. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't, I don't think that any band, even if they're releasing a record every week is they're not necessarily, uh, taking away from the value of, of the great work or the early work or whatever. Those things tend to be for, for most artists, those tend to be kind of the same thing. Um, but that it just, it just, you're just kind of creating more stuff for your fans to sift through. And, you know, obviously without naming names, I, there are bands that I love, but you know, they seem to put a new record out every six months. I'm just kind of like, oh man, I was just, I was just digesting the last one. We've got a lot of music to listen to. And I just don't think that people need a new Death Cab for Cutie record every year or even two years. I mean, I think, you know, I think, well, I think the longer we put out records, I think we'll probably, they'll probably be slight, slightly longer and longer kind of 
gaps between them as we try to make sure that we're not diluting the, the, the catalog that we've already put out. No, I think it's good to be intentional and it's good to be thoughtful around this. As I was doing a little prep uh, last night for this conversation, I was thinking about some of the other artists who were making music around the same time that you guys were beginning to break. We were talking about the early aughts and how indie became, you know, the new mainstream or whatever. And a lot of those bands, again, without naming names, kind of went away because they didn't really have anything else to offer except for a retread of whatever the last album was. And in some cases, I guess it is better to take the time and, and do something a little bit different and explore the other sides of, uh, of, of your songwriting. You know, let me just say this before we jump into this little Proust questionnaire. Um, you've always been very generous with, with me personally. And where I've worked, you did a, a benefit for, for the station I used to work at at KCRW back in the day. And I just want to put it on record that I appreciate that you show up, you know, and, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Let's jump into the, uh, the questions. So what is your first musical memory? My first musical memory is uh, probably when we were living in Japan. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around quite a bit. And I, I remember kind of coming online as a sentient being. Uh, when we were living in uh, off-base housing in outside of Yokosuka, Japan. So we were living in a Japanese neighborhood. And I, I just remember kind of coming online with albums always playing. And, you know, my dad listened to a lot of ACDC, listened to a lot of Devo, Beatles, Beach Boys, uh, a lot of Japanese kind of city pop stuff that was happening at that point. He had it on. Um, so I, I had these early memories of there always being music on in the house. And... To this day, it's literally the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is put an album on. You know, even I, I you know, get the kettle going for coffee and I put a record on. And I find that whether I'm in that in any space alone or even with anybody else, I just feel like, you know, music makes me feel less alone. It makes it gives me something to kind of feel in a particular space. Uh maybe that's a conversation for me and my therapist, but you know, that's kind of like that is something I feel is very important to me, is just having music present. Uh, so I can, to focus on because I just, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's been such a constant in my life since I can, since my early memories. What was the first music you bought with your own money? First record I ever bought with my own money was Big Bam Boom by Holland Oates, the Holland Oates mm. record. Uh, because I remember hearing, I think Out of Touch was the big single at that point, And I think I must've been eight or nine years old. Right. And, uh, I petitioned my parents to let me use my allowance to buy that record. Uh, which I did, and I still love it, and uh, I'm a huge Hollow Notes fan to this day. What was the first concert you went to without uh, parents or adult supervision? The first concert I went to on my own was the Sub Pop Ultra Lame Fest in 1992 uh, at the Paramount Theater. Uh, it was uh, Mud Honey was headlining. Uh, Seaweed and the Super Suckers played Pond, uh, the original Pond, the Pond from Portland played. Uh, uh, Earth. I remember Earth opened the show, which is a band that I, to this day, I love. I I adore Earth. But as a fifteen-year-old, maybe I was fourteen. I can't remember. I I must have been fifteen. I was so confused as to what was going on on the stage because Earth came out with just bass and drums and a drum machine, and just sat down and just played doom riffs for like a half hour. And I was so confused. I was like, Are these guys roadies? What's going on here? Uh, but you know, since then, I've, I've grown to love them. Do you remember the feeling of being at a live show for the first time, how it made you feel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, was, I grew up in this town called Bremerton that's across the water from Seattle. It's an hour's ferry ride. And 
what we would do, uh, me and my friends, would we would get the 8 a.m. boat from Bremerton because we just couldn't wait to get over to Seattle. And we'd spend the entire day walking all over the city, going to record stores. You know, we didn't have money. We couldn't afford to buy records, but just going into, uh, you know, any of the record stores that existed at that time, like Fallout or Orpheum, and thumbing through seven inches that we just could not get on the other side of the water. You know, that sense of like when physical media was all that existed yeah. and you had to go to somewhere to get it. I just couldn't be like, oh my God, they had that mud honey gas over split single and oh my God, they have this stuff. And it was just felt this like embarrassment of riches, you know? And I think at the time we'd have tickets for the show and maybe $10 to eat. So, you know, it would be like, we would find, there was a, a Godfather's pizza that had an all you could eat lunch buffet. And we would like, you know, stuff pizza in our pockets so we could take it to our friends outside. Yeah. I mean, going to a show is an event. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Ah, oh, man, when I want to dance, probably New Order. Mm, I like that. Always been New Order. Um, New Order or like, or Go-Go. DC, DC stuff. I mean, I, I lived in DC or I, lived, my, I should say I, we lived in Northern Virginia for three years uh, in the late 80s and which is when I was, exp where I was exposed to Go-Go. Uh, and I, it just that I had never heard anything that funky in my life, you know, at, to that point as a white suburban kid. And, um, uh, I remember going to like high school dances or junior high dances really. And instead of a DJ, they would have like a live go-go band, which I thought was incredible. I like that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, go-go music and uh, new order. Yeah. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? When I'm feeling sad, there is a, uh, Jim O'Rourke record called the visitor that uh when i went through a divorce about 12 years ago for whatever reason um that record became the, the record i listened to every morning that was the first thing i put on and i think one of the many reasons i loved it is because it it's this it's this kind of it's it's an instrumental album that almost feels like a kind of a you know a long one long piece and it just it just kind of moves through so many different kind of tempos and emotions from start to finish and at the time it was kind of a perfect encapsulation of my emotional state where it'd be a very melancholic moment and then a burst of joyous kind of music for a couple of minutes then we kind of it would kind of then evolve into something a little more melancholic or quieter introspective and and so that record kind of became that was like that record was my divorce record pretty much but so I, I, I don't listen to it often anymore, maybe because of that association. But when I think of records I listen to when I'm sad, that, that one pops out. If somebody said to you, look, you can make as much of your own music as you want for the rest of your life, but you can only hear one song by somebody else, what would it be? Oh, that's a super easy one. Uh, that, it would be There She Goes by The Laws. It's the perfect pop song. It's the perfect song. And I, I have a memory of, in 2005, for whatever re uh, for reasons that are still wildly unclear to me, the Laws did reunion shows in Japan at the Summer Sonic Festival, and we just so happened to be on the same stage uh, a couple bands earlier. So the the stage went. It was us, Teenage Fan Club, who are my favorite band of all time, and then the Laws. So this was a pretty like this was this was a big deal for me, and I. It was where I first met Norman from Teenage Fan Club, and we were hanging out. And you know, if, and I'm sure you've met him before. He's a, he's a lovely dude. And we were sitting, we were standing side stage watching the Laws play. You know, this record that's you know arguably one of the greatest pop records ever made. 
And they got to there she goes. And, you know, Norman turns to me and says, um, you know, classic pop song. It's crazy. It's about heroin. And I had never, <laughs> I had never put those two things together before. And so it's like, here I am standing with one of my musical idols who's in my favorite band watching something I never thought I'd see. And then I get this information. Yeah. And I, I, I just had completely missed, I had missed that, you know? So yeah, I, I could, I've, I've, heard, I've listened to that song. I can't tell you how many times that I never, I never tire of it. It's, it's a perfect song. It is. It's the perfect length and everything. They get in, they do their business, they get out and you're left wanting more. I mean, how much more can you want from a pop song? Exactly. Do you have a favorite music video? My favorite music video. Oh man. I think my favorite music video is probably the Radiohead video for Just, which to me is a perfect example of it's a, there's a narr there, there's a performance element, but there's also this narrative structure where a gentleman falls on the ground. You know, it's all subtitled. Guy falls on the ground. Somebody walks up to him and says, "Why are you laying down?" And he's like, "I can't tell you." And it's eventually a crowd starts to kind of form, and everybody's like demanding to know why this guy's laying on the ground. And he says, "Okay, I'll tell you." And then you don't see, you, there's no subtitles on what he's saying. And then the next thing you see at the end of the video, everybody's laying on the ground. And it's just this fucking great counter narrative to this song that's also yeah. great. And I love, I, I love the fact that those are my favorite types of videos, the ones that are not literal interpretations of the song or the lyrics specifically, but that offer a counter narrative that uh, works so well in concert with the lyrics or the tone of the music. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Recent musical discovery. I wouldn't, uh, I don't know how, re how recent or how much I've discovered them, but just as far as in my own listening, there's a, a wonderful band from Seattle called the black tones that I think everybody should know about. And, uh, like Eva Walker, the singer of the band is arguably one of the greatest front people I've seen in a long time. And they're one of those bands that I, I think people really need to see live. And that's not a, a knock on the records at all. But I, but when you see them live, you really get a sense of just, you know, what an incredible performer and kind of what a what an inclusive experience it is when when a performer is able to bring the audience in to them the way that Eva does. So I, I would I would say that everybody should check out the Black Tones. They're great. Is there a band or an artist that you personally love, uh, but feel perhaps they never quite got the big break or the attention they deserved? Man, that's like so many, so many bands. If there's one thing I've become very aware of in my musical travels is that oftentimes uh, timing has as much to do with the band's success as the quality of their music or what have you. And a lot of bands that that we came up with, I I felt were more victims of timing than anything else, and I it's my it's my position that um, you know King James Version and uh, Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone by Harvey Danger are two of you know very underrated underappreciated albums from that period, and I think a lot of it had to do with just the climate and alternative music at that time was kind of there wasn't a lot of space for you know, a band like that in the mainstream, although they had a big single, uh, you know, in 1998, um, it, they, they were kind of in that no man's land between alternative rock. Yeah. And the, the kind of the, you know, kind of the dregs of alternative rate of, of commercial alternative radio at that point and the indie rock 
that preceded it and also would, was, was to come afterwards. And uh, I think for me, as I mentioned earlier, watching this old 120 minutes with, uh, you know, they are my friends, so I'm a little biased, but with Harvey Danger and just seeing what else was popular in alternative, quote unquote, alternative music at that point, it was kind of like, wow, these guys never had a chance. You know, there was just, this wasn't what, it, this wasn't what it was at that point. So I, th I would, I would hope that, you know, as the years go on, that people, uh, give those records, you know, um, another shake. Cause I, I think the songwriting is phenomenal. You know, the, the, you know, the production and the presentation of course is of its time, but I think that there's a lot of really timeless moments on those records. You know, one of the things I've learned in, in life in, in general, I think is that timing is everything. Yeah, it really is. As, as well as good lights, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? Well, I don't believe in guilty pleasures at all. I think that calling anything a guilty pleasure is, is an attempt to present oneself as more cultured than they might actually be. Fair enough. Or to kind of um, make, you know, it'd be like, well, I really love Fellini, but my guilty pleasure of the Transformers movies is like, no, you like tra the Transformers and you like Fellini. You can like both things. Let me rephrase the question. Yeah. Is there an artist that we would be surprised to know that you like? Yeah, I really like Post Malone, honestly. I, it's, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's a super controversial thing to say. And I don't listen to a lot of contemporary pop music at all. It's not, not that I think I'm above it or whatever, or that it's uncool or something. Uh, but I just, I don't listen to the radio. I don't, or I should say, I, I don't listen to pop radio. I don't, you know, listen to, I don't just drive around with the, you know, turn the dial. So I'm very unaware of a lot of stuff that's popular. I feel in some ways, probably as a function of my age, I sometimes feel like I, you know, when I go to another country and people are on TV pretending to be famous, you know, it's kind of like, well, who are these people in Germany pretending to be famous? Like, well, they're famous in Germany. <laughs> exactly. No? Right. Of course. I'm joking, of course. Um, but, uh, but I'm starting to feel that way in America now sometimes too, where I'm like, who is this person and why are they pretending to be famous? <laughs> you know? Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think there, he has some very like pretty transcendent moments and, uh, you know, well, I'm very curious to see kind of how he develops over the course of his career. And our final question, how are you feeling right now? Right now I'm feeling a little hungry and, uh, I'm, I'm meeting a friend at noon for lunch, but emotionally I'm feeling, um, excited because we're going to start a tour on uh, Friday and, uh, it's been a couple months off the road and I'm kind of excited just to get back there. It's, it's, uh, it's January right now in Seattle, which is the days are short and dark and rainy and, uh, we're going to some sunny places or at least some places in the South that hopefully will be sunny. So yeah, I'm just excited to get a little, you know, get a little exploring under my belt. Well, it's great to catch up with you again. Thanks so much for, for being on the podcast. And I look forward to seeing the, uh, the double header later on this year. I know here in Los Angeles, you're doing three nights at the Hollywood Bowl, which is unbelievable. It's crazy. I mean, I, I felt confident that we would, the tour would do well, but I had no idea it would, would be doing this well. So I'm very humbled and very excited to get out there and, and kind of uh, share, this, uh, share these records with people. Well, hopefully I'll catch up with you then in person. Thanks for being on the, on the podcast, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.